Gary Thacker uh, is a name who will be familiar to listeners of these Football Times, the many, many podcasts. I went out just this morning and in my earbuds I had Gary waxing as lyrical as a man has ever waxed uh, about the Dutch team who are the subjects of your new book, Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange, colon, The Unfulfilled Glory of Dutch Football. 400 pages of, well, we talked about Proustian sponges. If, um, if, here's a stupid question, if the Dutch team of the 70s were a biscuit, what biscuit would it be? <laughs> correct, that's the correct answer. The mused <laughs> chuckle. It's a good question. Um, uh, I, I, I'm looking for something that says it's elegant and beautiful, but with a soft sense of um, that's a jammy doctor, isn't it? Just the white one, a bourbon biscuit with an orange centre, shall we say? Ooh, I'm having that. I will serve those uh, in the book launch. Well, because this kind of acts as a book launch because it's not out as we speak. It's not out as this goes out. It's out in June. Okay, the June. Uh, because it coincides with Holland playing a couple of games at Euro 2020. And those games are Ukraine on the 13th, Austria on the 17th, and North Macedonia on the 21st. Three wins out of three? Likely. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the Dutch team, the Dutch national team are so strange. They're so strange. They played in the 1934 World Cup and the 1938 World Cup. Didn't win a game. They didn't qualify a game. They lost both. They lost, they lost three, two to Switzerland, I think, in 34 and three in Czechoslovakia in, in 38. They didn't qualify a game for any tournament. And I mean, European Championships that started in 1960 or World Cup until 1974. They went 36 years without qualifying for a championship. And then won every game in the 1974 World Cup right up to the final. I hadn't won a single game in a World Cup tournament before that. Four years later, they went to Argentina as, as runners-up um, in the previous tournaments. And uh, they lost to Scotland, but otherwise they skated all the way through uh, to the final and lost to the host again. And then didn't qualify again for another World Cup until 1990. This is Dutch football. This is the Dutch, the Dutch team. And the strange thing about the 1974, I'm a little off, off uh, subject here, forgive me, Johnny. The strange thing about 1974 is they shouldn't have actually been there. The last game of the qualifying tournaments, they were playing Belgium. Because of previous results, um, the Dutch only needed a draw to qualify Belgium needs to win. But Belgium basically went there and defended stoically and holding a few chances, missed and missed sit up from about six yards aside with his wife, but pretty past the post. And in the last minute of the game, the Belgians had a free kick. Uh, out on the left, about halfway into the Dutch half, piled everybody forward. And the Dutch two were developing this system um, of uh, the rush defence from free kick. You see, occasionally see where just for a free kick, everybody rushes out, catches all the, the attackers offside, it's free kick. And they were coached by a guy called uh, Fafonk, who was uh, a Czechoslovakian guy. Paul Van Hems, the Belgian captain, took the free kick, and as he took it, the players went out. The ball arced across the box. Uh, Pete Schreiber was in goal. He half came for it, but hesitated, went back, missed it. And Jan van Heijen on the far stick put the ball in the back of the net. And the, ref, the, the linesman flagged for offside. If ever you get a chance to watch the video, there are at least three Dutch players playing him on side. So Belgium should have won that game, and the Dutch actually should have even qualified in 1974. Or as I... As I phrased it in my question that I've written down, what should have prevented oh, your book from being written? Oh, sorry, Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it certainly should have, but, but you know, it was a fairy tale sort of. Um, I, 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 I was speaking to a guy called Rob Smythe. Who is, great uh, Rob he, Smythe, yeah. Great Rob Smythe, a wonderful guy, and he uh, he helped me a lot with the book. I got a lot of quotes from him and Roger Rod. Articles in the Guardian. They gave me a lot of quotes, and uh, he interviewed a few of the Dutch guys, including Johnny Rep. He said uh, he got so much total football as a, as a total daylight robbery, but we would have been robbed of the beautiful game if the Dutch hadn't qualified, and, and that's true. And I would have been robbed of my book. So you know, uh, I thank the referee. The referee was a Russian guy. So I mean, yeah. So go back to you. Will they win the games? It's so difficult. In, in 1988, when um, Nichols got the Marvel Mind for the European Championship, they lost the first game. They lost to, to the Soviet Union. 
and that's, then they went on to win it. I mean, they got beat by the, the Scots in Argentina and still reached the final. If there's one thing the Dutch don't do, they don't do it the easy way. No, I hope they have good diets over there because heart attacks must have been very prevalent every four, <laughs> well, the fourth year when uh, when they had it. Yes, this book, Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange, it is, of course, out on Pitch Publications in the middle of June. When you were writing this book, did you think, right, there's Brilliant Orange by David Winner, there's Simon Cooper's couple of books, one of which is on Ajax and the nature of being an... Uh, yeah a Dutch football fan and the rivalry with Germany. When you were writing it, did you think, God, this is going to be read by people who want to learn about Dutch football as much as Winner and Cooper? I, I love David Winner's book. Cooper's books are quite a bit of slightly different. There's the Ajax one and there's the football against the enemy. Football or against the enemy? Against the enemy. Yeah, and I've got a few quotes in that book in there. Um, I love David Winner's book. I must have read it four times, four or five times. I spoke to David after after I finished my book. But uh, David's book is slightly different in as much as he, he, he focuses a lot on the Dutch culture. My emphasis has been very much different in, in as much as it's, my book is sort of the reasons why the Dutch didn't win rather than just necessarily looking from a Dutch uh, point of view. And uh, David's got a lot of quotes from the players, whereas I mean, I, I sort of went to sort of different routes as I tend to do with my books. It's, speaking to a lot of journalists who uh, were around at the time or have memories of the events of that. I just, just, it just suits my way of writing. So, yeah, I was aware of, those, of, of both those books. I and mean, you know, they're both classics. Um, but I, I wanted to do something with a slightly different bent to it. Mm. Uh, well, neither uh, Brilliant Orange or Football Against the Enemy opens with a quote from Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Yeah. Which was smart. <laughs> Uh, I, I started. I tried to read that book. I gave up after six pages. I wasn't in the frame of mind. I'm just not a beat. I'm a, fan, I'm a bit of a Kerouac fan. Um, and when I read that piece, that's um, about the uh, people I like, the people who made bullets. I just, I just fit it so nicely. I thought this is the perfect, perfect opening. So uh, that's why I'm a bit of a Kerouac fan. But I really like that. It suited the book perfectly. I'm just trying to find it. Yes, the only people for me are the... Ma- Sorry, I should do this in an American, but I won't. The only people for me are the mad ones, the ones who are mad to live, mad to talk, mad to be saved, desirous of everything at the same time, the ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but burn, 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 like fabulous yellow Roman candles, exploding like spiders across the stars. And then you write 400 pages on a round ball. <laughs> well, what I write 400 pages on is... Uh, uh... A Dutch team that burns like a flame, an orange flame. Yeah. Um, that, that lives, that burns bright, but burns briefly. And that's that's basically the essence. When we say what's the book about, that's those couple of sentences there is what's the book about. What is what the book is about? I beg your pardon. In as much as I say, it's it's a flame. It's it's incandescently wonderful. It's beautiful to look at, and it consumes all in front of it. But it burns out eventually, and it's, and it's gone. And it is out. Next month, pre-order it. It's doing very, very well on pre-orders, so congratulations about that. But no surprise, because you've got Palmer fans buying it. Um, what is it, Sporting Lisbon fans buying it. I imagine you'll do a lot of press about this book. I'm sure you've got something lined up uh, from for these football times. You do go through um, the 1974 team uh, with this podcast from a couple of years ago, which must have sown the seed. Was it a quick write? When did you start researching this? Uh, my books tend to take me about a year. So uh, basically the book was, was finished and sent to the publishers probably about June, July last year. So it's been with them quite a while. But the, the plan was always... I'm, I'm a bit like that. I'm a bit ahead of myself. Look, for instance, the Chelsea book I've got coming out in May next year is with the publishers now, already done. And I'm currently working on the sequel to my first novel, which is going to be out hopefully in uh, Christmas time. Hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got to ask. You can't just talk about novels. Uh, in 30 seconds, what is the games people play about? It's, it's a story about people and the backdrop is football. It's a guy whose career gets ended early. He, goes to, he gets a chance to go and coach a very small provincial team in Spain. falls in love with the country and sort of being, um, the club is uh, the victim of a, of a financial swindle. And the club nearly dies. And the first it leaves the basically the uh, first book leaves the story with the club in uh, all the parties going to go out existence. But I say I'm just writing a sequel now, so as you can probably imagine from that, that, 
that's not how quite it pans out. Mm. Hey, on an unrelated note, have you read The Miracle of Castel di Sangro? It's a good book, yeah, I really like the book. Because um, I haven't, uh, yeah. I haven't, but I know um, that a lot of what you've just said overlaps. It, yeah, yeah, actually, I wonder if that subconsciously did drop into my mind, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it, it's for slightly different reasons. I mean, the, um, the Miracle of Castel di Sangro is, is, um, is interesting as much as um, Inventa Codicini. Chelsea Tom, um Carlo Codicini from Castel di Sangro. And he came yeah. from Italy to play Stamford Bridge. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a really good book. I mean, I, I'd recommend it to anybody. The story is... It's one of those stories where you think, hey, did this, this happen? Well, of course it did. It's true. And uh, it, it, it's a club who, uh, who suffered through bad things, shall we say, but they keep the story away. Yeah, yeah no, which is a great book. It is a lot, it's, I think it's football's version of the mousetrap. Everyone who sees it is and or reads it is sworn to secrecy. And uh, unfortunately, we, we can't speak to Joe McGuinness because he's passed away. But um, one of the most um, beloved soccer books is The Miracle of Castel de Sangro. Um, I hope that Cheers, Tears and Jeers joins it. Uh, it is shockingly inexpensive on Kindle. Uh, but we, we know we know what England and the World Cup has got. Do you hope to write um, an extra chapter about how a Foden, Grealish, Sterling, Rashford, Mason Mount, England team is going to triumph in Qatar, or do you think that's ridiculous? Well, you, 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 you use the word "do I hope to?" Yes, do I expect to? That's a different question entirely. I think the England team now under Southgate, and Southgate gets a lot of bad press, especially amateur pundits. Um, has done an amazing job with, with England, bringing through so many young players, creating a new uh, belief and uh, hope and expectation for England fans that hasn't been there for obviously the time of, of, of Bobby Robson. I think they'll do well. I think they'll do as well as any European team. I think the problem is in playing guitar is not going to be suited to a European team. I think quite no. possibly Brazil might win the, European, the World Cup. Um, I, I'm not a betting man, but Brazil are going to win that tournament. Ooh. Don't do that. There's so many football books that haven't been written. Um <laughs> So yeah, that would be and, and we know what happened in twenty fourteen. Um but with with regard to England, Henry Winter's written that great book, Fifty Years of Hope and Why We Never Stop Believing. Paul Hayward is in the middle of writing a book about the history of English football and the national team. Uh the first World Cup you will remember is it sixty six? Well, yes, fully 66. Uh, I do remember 62. I remember the news in 62 because you didn't get live pictures. Um, it was a bit weird in as much as they sort of the uh, pictures you saw were almost days, if not weeks afterwards. I mean, probably six at the time. But I do remember the news coming through from, from Chile in 62. But first of all, I fully remember is 66, of course, of the ninth. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm one of the sort of privileged few uh England fans who can actually remember England winning the World Cup. I mean, it's it's quite a, a sort of recurring theme that we're on the podcast are doing with Stephen. That you know, I, I consider myself quite lucky to be the age I am, which sounds a bit strange because I'm older than these guys. But I've been privileged to see some of the amazing football in my time. I mean, the, you know, the Dutch, for example, Pele players that you know some people just sort of see in videos and on YouTube. Uh, but '66, yeah, I mean, that was a was a wonderful experience. You know, you look back and you think, you know in more sort of reflective terms that, you know, was it a great thing for football? Um, probably not. Tournament, I mean, not just winning, really, for example, you know, Brazil being kicked out of the tournament, Pelé, players lined up to kick Pelé, and Portugal going out, which was a disgrace. But people um, were doing that 20 years on, kicking Maradona. I'm sure they would have kicked Mbappe if they'd have caught him. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, do you know, I, th- I don't think to the same extent, Johnny, to be truthful with you. I, I think it was a Portuguese game. Forgive me, any Portuguese People listening from from a spiritual new country, it might it wasn't your guys, but um, I just have to literally lining up to kick him, literally lining up, get up, and somebody else will kick him. I, I, I mentioned this in the, in the, the Dutch book. Because they, that's a bad challenge. Well, you know, no, it's not a bad challenge. It's not a challenge. It's just somebody kicking somebody. Yes, it's nothing to do with location. Yeah, it's to do with location of the ball. I mean, I, I mentioned it with relation to the '97 World Cup game between. Um, the Dutch and Brazil, when uh, Pereira basically got sent off. They're losing two at the time, and uh, the ball goes to the near skins, and he just walks up. The near skins play the ball, and the ball 
falls two metres away and basically just hacks him to the floor. It's not a bad shot. I, I spoke to Graham Hunter, who was uh, giving an interview for the book, and uh, he's absolutely incandescent about that game, uh, the rugby tackles. And I, I think in the phrase he uses, he calls Brazil the Brazilian team thugs, if one of them says right. Yeah, that's right, um, thugs. And uh, this uh, game is Beauty Slays the Beast. Yeah, absolutely. It wasn't it? It would have been a travesty for football if um, if that if, if the Dutch had lost. And, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a semi-mitigating circumstance in as much as Santana, who was the uh, coach of Brazil at the time, um, remembered 66. And when the World Cup went back to Europe after 70 in Mexico and Brazil won in Mexico, he was determined not to, Brazil were not going to be kicked out of the tournament. They were going to get their punch in first. Now, I mean, okay, it's okay. I, I can, I, it, there's a certain logic to it, but you know, the, the days of 66 were eight years gone and football moved on. And, you know, even Brazil that was dragging it back to the dark days, it wasn't uh, any good team and certainly not in touch for sure. It is, it's a brilliant passage uh, when you describe that game. Um, I do want to have an intermission from 74 um, because what you do is you do kind of the backstory, the origin story, and I'm going to test you in the form of a quiz. So you've already given me one answer. Um, we'll try and do rapid fire. Your name is Gary Thacker. You're the author of Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange, Out on Pitch Publishing, and also lots of other books. And your specialist subject is your book, Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange. Are you okay. suitably ready? I am primed to ready to roll, Johnny. Excellent. Let's roll. What does the K in KNVB stand for? Royal. Yes, Kerning Klieker. What does the yeah. P in PSV stand for? Phillips. Phillips. In which year did Dutch football go fully pro? 1958. Oh, 1954. A bit earlier. Sorry. How yeah, many I... goals did Holland concede before the World Cup final in 1974? One, no goal. Correct. Against One, which... Against which team did Holland first play in orange shirts? England, lost 12-2. Correct. What club did Jap Boulder win the Dutch league with in the 1920s? It's Be Quick. Oh, Be Quick. Oh, it's a wonderful name for a club, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in what year and at what age did Johan Cruyff make his Ajax debut? Oh, he made his debut under Vic Buckingham, 61. 64. I, I don't think 64, and it'd be 19. 17. 17. 17, sorry, yeah. Yep, 17. What position did Rhinos Mikels play? He was a centre forward. He and was. he lost every game he played under, in, for, for the Orange. Under, he played every game under, yeah, uh, look, and they lost every game. He played back nine games, lost them all. Jesus. Ajax beat Liverpool, but lost against which cult club in the 1967 Champions Cup? Duke of Prague. Which Frenchman was moved to tears upon seeing West Germany beat the Netherlands in 1974? Eric Cantona. Cantona is right. Which team had more players represented in the Dutch 74 squad, Ajax or Feyenoord? Feyenoord. Yep, Feyenoord had seven, Ajax had six. During the 15-year duopoly between 1960 and 1974, who won more titles, Ajax or Feyenoord? Ajax. Ajax, with seven, Feyenoord had six. What links the managers of both Ajax and Feyenoord? We're talking Mikkels and we're talking Happel. Yes. No, they both went on to win, to play, to manage the Dutch national teams at World Cups, even though they haven't been the coaches when they qualified. That's right. Losers' medals is correct. Which squad member of the 74 squad stopped Rangers winning a 10th title in a row as Celtic manager? Tim Janssen. Tim Janssen. And which West German, who was on the pitch in the 74 final, went on to manage Scotland? Bertie Vokes. What Dutch word can be said of both Holzenbein and Klinsmann? Schwaber. Schwaber. I'll stop the clock so we can explain that. So we know Klinsmann did that dive in 1990. From what I read in your book, the Holzenbein one, which so inflamed Joan Cruyff that he got booked for arguing about it. Uh, yeah. Basically a lobbyist, yeah. just a diving little twit. Well, basically, um, it's, it's not a word I was, I was familiar with. Um, there's a wonderful guy 
as a Dutch journalist and uh, used to own and edit uh, El Purple, which is a famous Dutch football magazine and he commentates football called Jan Herman de Bruyne. And uh, I, I spoke with Jan five or six times gave me interviews, but great guy. As long as you've got a cup of coffee, he's chat about football for hours. And he told me about this and basically it came from uh, the World Cup final when uh, Hudson Boyne went down under a challenge, shall we say, which if you look at the video, nobody touches him. Or there's no clear evidence that anybody touches him. And as you say, Cruyff was incandescent rage afterwards. Jack Taylor was a referee and later uh, Jack Taylor said and he'd he made a mistake in the penalty. But Schwalbe is a German word. It may actually mean swallow, but in effect, it's swallow dive. And so uh, the description of that. And uh, it came to become, it was sort of co-opted to the Dutch language to mean anything that sort of involves sharp practice in football. So it's the German word that, that, that taken into the Dutch language because of that incident in the 74 World Cup final. And incidentally, this, in 78, there was a similar situation as Dutch were playing Germany in the second group phase. And uh, the Ninka got sent off because uh, Hudson Bayern apparently there was a throw in and a bit of, shall we say, argy bargy and bags <laughs> of templates, whatever phrase you want to use, fell to the floor and Naninka got booked. And then the referee thought Naninka made a comment to him about it, which Naninka denies vehemently, and he got sent off. So there were two spalmers both involving Hudson Bayern's in the one in 74 and one in 78. Yeah, fascinating. And I'll say that, that's down to Jan uh, Herman de Bruyne who gave me that information. How many red cards did your friend de Bruyne think Brazil should have had if the Holland Brazil match had been played today? Six. Johnny Rep said six. De Bruyne said ten. Uh, ten. Ten. Yeah, that's right. He, he, he said the goalkeeper was okay. Yeah, Rep said six. That's right. Yeah. He yeah. talks about. Um, about uh, Rivellino, doesn't he? Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and that's just, it's anthology worthy, that passage. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what yeah. does Meten bring? Oh, uh, experience brings knowledge. Yes, Vetten. Meten bring a Vetten. I like that yeah. phrase. And this is Michael Mikkel's ability to organise things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Who, however, was called too slow and one dimensional by Mikkel's? <laughs> The same domestic team. Yes, perhaps they would have same won all the... team, yes. Yeah. Who had blonde flowing locks and teen idol looks? That's, that's Johnny Rep, isn't it? Yeah. Is, is he kind of a Robbie Savage figure? <laughs> well, he can play football, so perhaps mm. not. Um, yeah, he was very much... I mean, this is the sort of Beyond Borg sort of look-alike, shall we say. Because he was a young player, he, he signed um, for Ajax in about 71, 72, perhaps. He was a youth team for a while. And he didn't get into the first team. There was, he was a bit of resentment with Cruyff that he didn't get into the first team until Cruyff said it was OK. Um, so, but Rep was a, was a wonderful player. And he went on to play uh, Bastia uh, in the Liga in France and then uh, Valencia in, uh, in La Liga. And I think they lost, before the 78 World Cup, they lost the European Cup Women's Cup or the UEFA Cup to Andalect, I think. Yeah. I think it was Bastia at the time. If only Stephen Scragg had written books about the Cup Winners' Cup and the UEFA Cup so you could turn to them had, and check. If only he had, and I'll tell you why, he's got another one coming out. Yeah, so I forgot. Got, got yeah, not difficult to work out what is the, the, uh, the subject matter is. And it'll be an absolutely blinding book. I mean, Stephen's a fantastic writer. Keen football library listeners, and there are some, will know that I've had Stephen and Stu in. So completing the trilogy with God, um, that's his words, not mine, Gary Thacker. <laughs> And now a question about God, uh, who I don't know if Johan Cruyff called himself God. Uh, he is certainly far and away. Uh, so at least for Ajax fans, I think if you're a Feyenoord fan, you will say Van Genegem. Um yeah. What was the result of the Cruyff cross that immediately followed his turn? It, it was actually um, like a, a, a 
a summary of Dutch football in one moment because it led to nothing. The, the, sorry, the guy calls the Swedish defender. He got sent so far the wrong way. Not only had to get back into the stadium by a ticket, he had to get in a taxi first to get back. Gone so far the wrong way. And Chris skated past him, hit the cross with the outside of his right foot. Missed everybody the ball running out for a throw. It's a new Dutch football. Correct. And you, you source uh, Jan Olsen's interview uh, yeah. that... Ira, was it with Rob Smith, the interview? I, don't, I remember to be truth with Johnny. I'm not, yeah. not that I, I'm not certain. I don't think it was. Um, but it, it, was, it was a very sort of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, deferential. Uh, and he said, you know, uh, it, was, uh, it was an honour to, to be the Jew in a country. Yeah, absolutely. Or something like that. Yeah. Uh, and fun fact, only two footballers have had moves named after them on the, for something they do on the football pitch. One is Cruyff for the turn, and the other is it's it's a way the ball is struck. It's a way a stationary ball is struck. Oh, you know Ronaldo? Is nope. it Ronaldo? Nope, earlier, much earlier, and more check. Oh, penalty, of course. Penalty, penalty. Yeah, and now, yeah. because, because God has... Uh, admired football for a long time. Do you remember watching the Euro 76 final and seeing the Penenka penalty? I do. I've got a piece about it as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a wonderful thing. To get. I suppose like most England fans at the time, we didn't want the Germans to win. The Czechs had been two goals up until quite late in the game. I think actually might have been I can't remember. It might have been or the Buddha who scored a late equaliser to take it to extra time and penalties and... Uh, yeah, it's a wonderful thing, um, a wonderful goal. To do that in you know in a, in a match with your mates is one thing. To do it in the final of the European Championship takes... But he took all his penalties like that. Yep, I mean, in training. Yeah, I mean, he practised for ages afterwards. Um, and he, 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 he goalkeeper, his friend, and they used to have a bet. If, if he scored, goalkeeper would have to buy him a beer and a biscuit and vice versa mm-hmm. and he's out to the stage where he's yeah, I have to stop doing it because the goal keeps getting too fat too many biscuits he's going too many <laughs> I think you've been reading Ben Littleton's book 12 Yards which well you had to read it because you've written about England and World Cups <laughs> I actually haven't read that book actually I'm, I'm aware of it but I haven't read it but um, the penalties in, in the World Cup are really interesting because there's a, there's a, a sort of similar thing in, in, with Rensselaer Rensselaer Tall's book penalties in 78 um, I just think he scored four. He says, right, Neeskin's took him in 74. Um, but Neeskin, uh, sorry, was playing for uh, Anderlecht at the time. And after training, he used to practice penalties and he'd tell the goalkeeper where he's going to put the ball. Is it going low left? Is it going top right? Etc. Etc. And still score. Consummate penalty taker. I mean, Neeskin's was very much a penalty penalty. He just smashed the ball, basically. Um, if you watch the, the Rensselaer penalties in '78, they're they're so elegant place that you, you almost can pick the ball up and put it in a more difficult place for the goalkeeper. Um, you know, there's, there's more than one way to skin a cat, and Rensselaer and Neeskins had slightly different uh, techniques. I can't remember if it was Stu or Stephen, but there's a really good Robert Rensselaer piece on these Stu, football times. Uh, it's Stu. It's Stu. It's Stu, mate. Okay. Sorry, Stevie. St- Stevie. Okay. Um, a couple more quiz questions and then we'll go to the more philosophical questions. Uh, okay. What links Julian Lopetegui and Frantisek Fadronk? Oh, that's an interesting one. And I can throw another one in there. There's another guy called um, Jans Varkois who fits into the same mould. Basically, they're players, they're coaches who took their team to World Cup finals tournaments and never actually had a chance to coach them in the final. Um, in 70, so, I mean, obviously, Fadronk was 74. Um, and basically, uh, KNVB decided to ditch him and bring Mike Nichols in for the tournament. And um, Lapetegui, in 2018, obviously, was uh, let it be known that he was going to take the Real Madrid job after the tournament, so the, the IVF uh, decided to kick him out anyway. But um, Jan Sparkos took over the, uh, the Dutch uh, team after the 76 tournament when George Noble coached them. Uh, it was the only major tournament in the, in the 70s where the Dutch didn't change the coach before the finals. And Lovell was a bit of a over-promoted situation. He, he, I mean, strange, strange situation. When uh, Stefan Kovacs left uh, Ajax in 73 after winning the third uh, uh, European Cup, he went to manage the French national team. And the, the Ajax board were basically of the opinion that 
we can basically get anybody to do because he's seen roll steamrolling buddy. And they took a guy, this uh, George Noble, who was coach at uh, MVV Maastricht at the time, they had a mid-ranking team, and uh, Jan Hammond, one of the guys I mentioned earlier, told me, you know, he was very much considered a small-town coach, not a big-team coach, a small-town coach. And uh, he's, he's sort of presided over Ajax for one season uh, when they lost the first uh, European Cup title they'd lost in four years, losing out to CSK Sofia. And uh, they didn't win the league. They won the European Super Cup straight away. Um, but didn't win anything, basically. And he left Ajax after one season and got the Dutch national job. Absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And uh, he was a disaster, basically. Um, but sorry, so, so uh, 70, after after 76, they were looking at Kobe, they were looking for a guy to sort of steady the ship. Jans Barkleis had been, um, in, in the 60s, Conscription was uh, obligatory in the Dutch in the, for the Dutch population, and Jan Barkhuis was a fairly ordinary defensive player and professional career during the uh, armed forces. and was captain of the Dutch RF because of his football background. He became coach of the Dutch military team, and a number of players went through uh, the Dutch national team, uh, the Dutch military national team, including Van Hulshoff, Jan Beveren, I think Renson Brink as well. But several players went through, several top-notch players. And basically, they, he'd been with the um, sort of seconded to the KNVB for quite a while. And they appointed him as manager, as coach. Of the, and originally, for four games, he won them all. And then he, they gave him the job until the, uh, the World Cup, or the World Cup, was Happel in. But Sparkos sort of stayed on with, um, with Happel. And it, there's, a, there's a sort of conjecture as to what their relationship was, which I cover in the book. But he had a, he had a, a fair amount of influence in the team. Although he wasn't coach, Happel was. So he's the third one that, that took his team to the World uh, Finals and then didn't have the chance to coach them in the final. And exactly the same thing happened in 78 as in 74. A couple of questions pertaining to that. Here's an easy one. What was curious about the jersey numbers for Argentina and Holland in both their meetings? There was a slight difference. In 74, um, the Dutch were numbered 1 to uh, 22 alphabetically. Except for Cruyff. Cruyff had 14. He should have been a four, I think. In Argentina in the 78, Argentina was strictly numerical. That's uh, so strictly alphabetical. Hence, I think Aussie ideas were number two. Uh, and there was there was a number 14, but there was no number 14 jersey on the pitch in the final <sighs> for Holland, which is very interesting. Yeah. Um, strangely enough, the, the guy who had 14 in the squad was also named Johan. Yes. But he wasn't Johan Cruyff, he was Johan Bosman. No relation to that, Bosman. Cruyff, of course, was missing for the 1978 tournament. But aside from the van der Kirchhoffs, which three players appeared in the 78 final who didn't do so in 1974? Danny Brantz. Who went into the World Uh, Cup with one cap. Oh, um... Is Brantz. And the other two? uh, One is a centre-back and one is not. God, I'm absolutely praying for it. Was it... Was it Pete Dilshit? Oh, no. Uh, I'm sorry, Johnny. Johnny, I've got a total brain freeze. No, I'll, I'll give you a clue. I just want it because I may have led you down a garden path because I looked at okay. the squad, not the positions. Uh, he was a left back. Who was the left back in the 78 final? It's not uh, It's not Richt Fleet. Uh, Port Fleet. Port Fleet. The left back. And the other one is yeah. a chap who, believe it or not, was an amateur. Well, you know this because you wrote the book. He was an amateur in 1974 and played uh, in the World Cup final. His name is... Dignan Inca. But he didn't play, he didn't start. He came as a sub. Yes. Yeah, he came as a sub. He was actually a florist as well, which is an interesting one. And, and for a rugged centre-forward who made his... Very much in the mould of, let's think of as somebody similar, Joe Jordan sort mm-hmm. of player. He, was, he owned a florist shop. Is it still a florist, uh, that shop? I don't, I don't know, but he, he, the day after the World Cup, they flew back, he went and opened the shop. And it was interesting that a lot of people bought him notes and things, but he was very, very sort of level-headed about it because he came to fame quite late. In fact, his, I think his first Dutch cap was about three or four months before the game, the, uh, the finals. I think they played a friendly against, say, Morocco or, or Genius. Then he scored a couple of goals, then 4-0. And uh, basically, he, he got into the squad as sort of... Um, 
I, I, I think I used a phrase that in the 74, it would have been like the stone in the, the uncomfortable stone in the shoe of the uh, total football because it was very much a rugged centre forward. Mm-hmm. And uh, just as a correction to the question, one of the van der Kirchhoffs came on for the 80, for the 74 final. Uh, both of the van der Kirchhoffs played in the 78 final. So just That's in right, case... Yeah. Just in case there are people yelling at the radio and thinking, what, is, what does he know? I had a really good moment. I was in Eastbourne uh, staying at my friend John and his wife Haley's B&B in Eastbourne. And I had Rude Hullett's book that I was reading at the time. And as it happened, there were people across from me having breakfast who were Dutch. So we had a nice 10 minute conversation about Dutch football. And this was in 2019. Right. So we got to talk about Van Dyke. I think we talked about 2010. Here's a counterfactual. What if Holland had won the World Cup final, let's say on penalties, in 2010? <sighs> Disaster. You know, I, I, I used the 2010 World Cup. I wasn't going to go that far um, forward in the book, um, but I wanted to use 2010 as a counterpoint. And there's a one, some wonderful quote I got out there's the, um, it's when the Times Cruyff rages about the way they played and their ugly football, and it was good that they lost, and they should have had two or three players sent off, not just the one. It would have been terrible. I, I like football to win. I like good football to win. And it, to me, the Dutch teams, the 74 and 78, were the best teams, and they didn't win, and it's a shame, and that's why I wanted to tell the story of why. Um, but in 2010, the final was a terrible game. Whether they sort of accepted that they couldn't beat the Spain, Spanish at, at football, and strangely enough, the sort of weird thing is that the Spanish played Dutch football. Yep. And that triumphed. But the shirts were red and orange. In fact, you know, the, I think Dutch were white in the final anyway. I think they were shirts were orange. Um, but it was terrible. It was a terrible performance. It was heartbreaking. Vetman uh, Marwick, who was the manager at the time, has often been described as being uh, having a, a pragmatic approach. I, I might use another word. Yes. And it, yes, and it won't begin with P. I mean, there are a couple of philosophical questions that are the kind of questions that we can knock about because as a, as a classic student, there was the Academy in Athens. And so the Academy in Athens is transported to the Andy Holt Lounge in the football library, uh, named after the Accrington owner. Yes, and it's, it's got all the coffee table books stacked up. It's got all the copies of magazines like the These Football Times magazines including the new one that, as we speak, we don't know what it's on, but by the time this goes out, we will know, and it will probably be sold out by the end of May. So check eBay. And one of the things that is worth discussing, and Jonathan Wilson does this in his great book of the Barcelona legacy, were the Dutch not victims of their own success? Firstly, you, you mentioned how they taught the Germans how to play, or rather Rafa Honigstein says that they taught yeah. the Dutch. They taught the Germans how to play in the Dutch manner. And then Cruyff went to Spain and bestowed the what, he, what Wilson calls the Barca Ajax, the Barca Ajax way. So was yeah. it the fact that Holland had just taught Argentina in 78 all the tricks that they'd come up with? No, and that's not Argentina, the Argentines, no. I mean, I, I think what's called the Argentina victory in 78 was a bit, a bit of a wild card in as much as the Holland team always wins. But there were so many uh, going on there that, that, that sort of contributed to their victory. Now, Argentina were a really good team, and perhaps they'd have won without it. The Argentine victory was more of a passion play. There was less science about it. There was more, um, it was heart rather than brain, perhaps. But the way they played wasn't going to alter the paradigm. The way the Dutch played did alter the paradigm of football. The way the Spanish played did alter the paradigm of football. You see all this playing out from the back now. None of that would have happened. I was sitting up for a long time. Anyway, you mentioned it about um, Rafa. Rafa Arnestone is a really, really good guy to, to work with. And uh, he, he gave me... I wanted to get a German perspective on the final. Because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one of these truisms that history is always written by the winners. Well, not in this World Cup final. It's, the 74 World Cup final, the, the history is written about the Dutch, how wonderful they were, and you know, how the Germans stole it. The, the final, um, but once I wanted to get a, a German perspective, and uh, I, I spoke to Rafa and he said, "Yeah, I have to give you an interview about it." So he did, and gave me a lot of things. And in Germany, it's just not seen that way, and he had no idea of what the sort of global 
narrative of the final was until he came to live in England. Yeah, in the mid-90s, um, he studied law at UCL, for those who don't correct. know. Yes. Yeah, correct. He still lives on 100 miles, I suppose, about a couple of days ago. Okay. And, uh, I, yeah, I've written, I said, written that scar. The Germans had no perception of this sort of being cast in the sort of Robert Barron um, pantomime villain role to steal away the Dutch prize. Uh, they just didn't see it like that. So, yes, winning is winning. Uh, Barry Horshoff died last year. Uh, yeah, true. He's the Jimmy Greaves, you know, because you, know, you were there, because you're very old, but Jimmy Greaves didn't play in the World Cup final and Jeff Hurst stole his thunder. Jerry Murrin was another player who didn't make the World Cup and we do have the other counterfactual, but Barry Horshoff comes out really well in this book. Did you read the obituaries last year? I did. I mean, I have to say... <laughs> Barry Horshoff is my all-time favourite player. Uh-huh. I mean, a wonderful, wonderful footballer. Uh, this is a guy who only played 13 times for the Dutch national team as a centre-back. He scored six goals in 13 internationals from centre-back. If you ever get a chance to watch any of the old uh, YouTube of uh, Ajax, uh, pitches were terrible at the time. Uh, this guy, had a re- he was such a big guy, massive hair and bushy beard, Socks rolled round his ankles, and he just strided around, strided around the football field like some colossus, you know, out to, to, to right the wrongs of the football world. I'm an extraordinarily skillful player. And uh, Emma the Bruna said, he gave a description of him that he was considered like a Viking um, by the teams, and his, his presence and his appearance tended to sort of cow opponents before that even and it wasn't anything anything like a ruffian or thug player he was just a big guy but a big guy blessed with amazing talents and uh, he, he suffered a knee injury in the uh, in 1974 which means he couldn't play in the uh, in the World Cup and the other guy who um, were the two obvious centre-backs was a guy called Vinus uh, Israel who was captain of Feyenoord and scored in the 1970 European Cup one against Celtic but he also had a bad injury, a bad knee injury. Um, but Mikkels took took his way up to the uh, to Germany to, uh, to the World Cup finals. But only used him sparingly as a substitute in a couple of good three games. And instead, what he did was, and you couldn't really get a much more total vert, total bird ball um, solution to a problem. He decided to play uh, in Reisbergen, who I think had only got one cap. Remember, says me right before the '74 World Cup. It was a, a fullback. He played him as a centre-back. And these other starting centre-back who played throughout the entire tournament was Harry Hahn. Harry Hahn was a midfield player. And what they, it almost compelled the Dutch to do was to play out from the back because they got a midfield player playing there. And uh, the other strange selection was um, the goalkeeper. The top Dutch goalkeeper at the time was a guy called Jan van Beveren and who played for PSV. And he got injured... Um, in a cup game PSV and he missed a couple of Dutch internationals and a pick five was played instead and he came to the, um, the gathering the pre-squad the pre selection as it were and Mikkels had just taken over the squad and said to Van Bremen he'd arranged a good friendly I think it was with the Hamburg which was before the finals he said to Van Bremen he wanted to prove your fitness and Van Bremen there was a big 27, 28 at the time <coughs> excuse me an established professional said, you know, no, I'll we'll come back, I've played a couple of games, I'm fine, but I don't want to risk doing any damage. So if you insist I'll play half a game, well, I don't want to play the entire game in case it does any damage. And Nicholas basically said, well, you're going to play then. And so basically the Dutch had decided to leave, this is typical Dutch football, decided to leave out probably, or certainly one of the top half dozen goalkeepers in Europe, probably the best, probably uh, Schreiber's would, would be number one. And perhaps uh, the talk is that Quite an influence decision, they decided to go with a guy called Jan Jongblut. Jan Jongblut played for FC Amsterdam and he played, bear in mind this is 1974, his only one international a dozen years previously, where he came on as a substitute for five minutes at the end of the game and conceded a goal. That was a total of, of Jan Jongblut's uh, international experience um, before the 1974 World Cup. So basically, they got, but the rationale was that Jongblut was better with his feet. He wasn't as great a goalkeeper, he was a better footballer, and therefore he would sit better suit the system, I'm not so sure. But so basically, the goalkeeper, the two centre-backs, as we talk about Czech and 
Carvalho and Terry earlier was Jan Youngblood, Bill Roisberg and Harry Horn. If you'd have given anybody, any Dutch football fan, a thousand giveaways before to pick your three centre-backs, your two centre-backs a goalkeeper, nobody would have picked any of them. Any of them. So what you're saying is Gareth Southgate should choose Rob Green in goal and a defensive pairing of, well, he's already tried it with Walker, and Jordan Henderson. That's... I'm trying to... I mean, yeah, I'm not saying that, but it's what the Dutch did. It's crazy what the Dutch did, yeah. You get to the final, having conceded, as we said earlier, only one goal, and that was around goal scored by Ruud Kroll when the Dutch were 4-0 up, I think, against Bulgaria in the last game, in through the last uh, five or ten minutes of the game. Um, so it worked, but we're talking about no disrespect to Jordan Henderson and Carl Walker, but neither of them are, neither of them are Ben Weisberg or Harry Hart, and that's for sure. No. I could have also said Joe Hart for Youngblood, uh, but I wanted to tell you. I don't know why Rob Green was the first one that popped into my head. Do you listen to Green on uh, Five Live when he does the summaries? I don't, because we don't get uh, English radio over here, so no. Oh, I play it. BBC Sounds. It's all on there. Uh, I do. Yeah, I know. I, 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 I can do, but I tend not to listen to the radio over much to be honest with you. Is it Radradzani who's got 11 sports? That's his beast. Oh, it's okay. I think. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah. So, yes, beautiful bridesmaids dressed in orange comes out next month. We're talking in the middle of Euro week. Chelsea could be there. Former Chelsea players, future Chelsea players might be there. Do you care that Erling Haaland is wanted by Chelsea? I don't know, because I tell you, the simple reason is this. Chelsea have a wonderful terrible record of picking centre forwards who turn out to be useless. Um, I'm going back as far as useless is forgive me, I think that's that's an unfair term. Who turn not to work out very well, shall we say. I spent six million pounds on Chris Sutton going back a long time ago. Not so great. Actually um, on my on my walk this morning I went into the works. Other bookshops are available obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. Chris Sutton's yeah. book was available for four pounds. So if you if you <laughs> If you don't want to take a fee for this appearance, I can send a copy over. It's fine. I think his, <laughs> he's, his MO now is to draw attention to the plight of dementia and Alzheimer's in old footballers like his dad who passed away. So the, the social issues of football. And annoyingly, I could talk to you for another two hours. I talked to David Winner for two hours. But I have to go back to UEFA.com as this goes out. I have to check uh, the finals week for... Um, for what's going on, do you have a pick for a Champions League winner? If if Chelsea are going to lose to any club, I can't see anybody getting past Bayern. Yeah, unless I mean, if Chelsea beat Bayern, he's going to have to be in the same situation to what happened in 2012. But you know, I mean, it's almost sort of spoil my plans if Chelsea win the Champions League this season anyway. But if it's next season, because I'm trying trying with my uh, my Chelsea will come get next year. Oh yes, hopefully they'll win next year. Just to to circle back to what we talked about, here are the biggest eight teams in Europe. Man City, Dortmund, Porto, Chelsea, Bayern, Paris Saint-Germain, Real Madrid, Liverpool. If you add them all up, they could probably bankroll social projects in Africa for years. Do you ever think, yes, it's good watching Chelsea, but there are some aspects of football as a business. Basically, it's Gareth Southgate. The game's good. The business is horrible. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, I mean, as I say, you know, I'm old enough to remember when that wasn't the case. Although, let me rephrase that. Although it was less the case, it always has been the case. But it's less the case now. That's always less the case then. Um, but it's it's only going to go one way. Football sold its soul in a big leap when with the Premier League, um, and once that that dam was broken, it's only going to go one way, Johnny. Are you looking forward to the inevitable 30 years of the Premier League and then people like Johnny Nicholson, who is actually the football librarian? I've got him at the front desk, Johnny Nick from Football 365. Uh, him saying, yeah, 30 years ago, back when football was invented in 1992. But football did exist before 1992. And what your literature does, including this book, Beautiful Bridesmaids Dressed in Orange, out next month, does, is it educates people about what happened before the super countries got involved. I mean, we're coming up to 50 years now. Could you believe yeah. that since that yeah, cup final? Strange enough, Johnny, I'm just, I mean, I'm, you know, it's a plug-in, plug-in book I've got. Just recently signed a deal to uh, produce a book in 2023, uh, focus on Ajax called The Dutch Masters, which will be 50 years from their third European Cup triumph in mm-hmm. 1973. 19, the 70s are a long time uh, in the past, but the football that was played then by the Dutch teams 
international teams and the just club teams. Sensational. Now we say, you know, I'm a Chelsea fan and, you know, Chelsea McCrogan, I, you know, I love them and love them, but my, my admiration for football is like looking at a beautiful painting or a work of art. It's something I admire, aesthetically pleasing. God, you sound like Arsene Wenger. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I do, do apologise, although Arsene Wenger is a manager I admire massively. Uh, uh, I did wonderful things for English football. Yeah. Wonderful things. And in fact, the day that this comes out, I've completed, I don't know why this date is in my head, but the paperback of Arsene Wenger's memoir comes out as you listen to this uh, today. I don't know why Wenger has timed it to match UEFA finals week, but he's very wily, that man. <laughs> he's a certainly an educated chap, and uh, I would suggest that that's probably no coincidence, Johnny. No, he is a specialist in timing things. So, indeed, indeed, I'm sure that book will be worth reading as well. So, have you fin- you finished the Chelsea book? The novel is half written, mostly written? Well, the, well, the, the sequel is, is um, about, oh, no, about 20% through. It's got to be, I spoke to the publishers, as we said, around, get to them around before September time. So, that much is for that. And, of course, these football times, have you got any pieces going up soon, or is it all audio this month? It tends to be mainly audio, um... We've got, as I mentioned to you, you know, we're sort of recording two or three um, podcasts a week now, and it's just get it's an absolute monster. And it just, I think Stephen Stewart and myself, it takes uh, takes goodly chunks of our time. And you know, we're we're, we're all three of us are um, immensely sorts of grateful that our partners are uh, are very tolerant of our uh, of our proclivity for doing podcasts. Yes, and it's yes, these football times co, isn't it? It is, that's correct, Matty, and there's some wonderful things. I mean, you know, forgive me, just, it sounds like a plug, and it's not. There is some genuinely outstanding writing on there, and you know, I, if ever I've been lost for an hour or so, I'll just dip into them and find something to read and just pick anything. There's, I, I don't know if there are articles on there, but there's there's hundreds and hundreds, and almost an exception, they're, they're outstanding writing. And if I've learned nothing about Dutch football today, which I've learned a lot, I now know about Fernando Peiroteo, and it's all thanks to you, Gary Thacker. Muchos gracias y uh, gracias. Sounds like Roy Hodgson. Uh, y hasta luego, and I hope you come back to see Polly and the family when time allows. God oh, bless you, Gonzalez, Johnny. Thanks very much. It's been an absolute joy, mate.